0: Wow, I think I need that one, specifically that scripture, like at least once a week. What a glorious truth. And in view of the salvation that we have available in Christ Jesus, we do indeed rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So uh, who here this morning couldn't use a little more of that? Who here this morning couldn't use a good dose of joy? Well, of course we all could, and that's a good thing, because the passage before us today is just dripping with it, just dripping with the joy of the Lord, and it's, it's made of the same stuff, that which we will uh, read here in a moment as what Chad has just read us from God's Word in First Peter. It's made of the joy of our salvation. So let me invite you to open up your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 10. We'll be picking up in verse 17. Luke 10, beginning in verse 17. If you're using our church Bible in the seat back in front of you, you can find that passage on page 816. Again, Luke chapter 10, verse 17. Let's uh, let's pray one more time as we go to the Lord and ask for his help reading and applying his word. Father, we're desperate for your guidance, and we thank you that you are quick to give it in the name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit. So, with your word before us now, Lord, we ask for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened. We ask for revelation in your name. We ask for glad submission to your truth. Would you guard us, as we often pray, from error as we approach your word and guide us in the truth in the name of Jesus and and for his glory? All of us pray. Amen. Well, let's read together in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. Dr. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And turning to his disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take it from the top. We've been working our way together through Luke chapter 10. And we, uh, we've picked up here in verse 17 at a place where we left off last time we were together. We've picked up with the return of these 72 disciples that the Lord sent out on mission ahead of him. You can read more about that if you're curious or if you missed last week's message back at the beginning of chapter 10. Remember now, Jesus had sent out these followers, these disciples of His, two by two, into the towns He was about to go to do two things in particular. First, to proclaim the kingdom of God, that it's coming because Jesus was coming, and then to heal. And it's curious, I think, that we get almost nothing reported, really no specifics at all from their respective missions as they went. But we do see here, quite clearly, that their missions were a resounding, resounding excuse me, success. They are delighted. They're just brimming over with joy for this kind of power and authority and success in ministry that they've had with their boots on the ground here in this chapter. Notice what they're saying here in verse 17. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, Jesus provides what I'll call a layered response to this statement, to this report. He gives a threefold answer to their their news with one new piece of truth revealed in each of the next three verses, verse 18, then verse 19, then verse 20. So let's take them one at a time. The first thing he tells them in response to this amazing news and and their subsequent joy that, that even the demons are subject to them in his name is downright staggering, I think. Look at verse 18. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, hang with me for a minute. The the verb that Jesus uses to describe what he saw here in this verse, verse 18, is in the imperfect tense, which simply means that you could describe this as a continual process, not as a one-time event. So why is that important? Well, because everybody loves grammar, duh. No? Well, this is important because this passage can also be translated this way. In the continual tense, I was watching Satan fall like lightning, as in, as the disciples were ministering out in these towns and villages. Jesus was watching in that moment Satan fall like lightning as they were casting out demons and ministering in Jesus' name. Because of the context of the disciples reporting what they did, this is the likely sense that Jesus was speaking in, not in a one-time, far, far away sense that, of course, we know Jesus has defeated Satan, but even in the moment, as a result of their reporting here, as the, res- uh, the result of their mission, we see that the enemy has taken a major blow. Now again, let's, let's make sure we're, we're thinking clearly and biblically about this idea here. Scripture makes it quite plain that the decisive defeat of Satan came at the cross, And His punishment is still yet coming at the very end. His destination is where? A lake of fire, yeah. At the consummation of all things, He will be consummately punished for His wickedness. And yet, though Satan's defeat can be pinpointed ultimately to the cross, though His punishment, though his consequence is consigned to the lake of fire, we see even in this event that this indicates he's taking a current hit. There's a sense, you see, in which Satan has fallen, past tense, and he will fully and finally fall. Yet here what we see is that the powers of earth and hell continue to submit to the victory of Jesus as the progress of the gospel moves along its way. It's kind of like Martin Luther taught us to sing that old Reformation hymn. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Think of it this way. Just like there's a sense in which we have been saved, if you're standing in Christ with his righteousness, eternal life is yours. We have, past tense, been saved if we are indeed in Christ. There's also another sense in which our salvation is not yet fully and finally complete. So, in a sense, we have been saved, and there's another sense in which we are continuing to be saved. We call this principle in Scripture the already, not yet, aspect of our faith. And so just like that works that way with our salvation, so it works also on the other side of the coin. You see, there's this sense in which Satan has been defeated, and yet he's also continuing to be defeated. Isn't this good news for us? Which means, I think, as followers of Jesus Christ today... Our role in this spiritual battle in which we are presently engaged matters, and it matters deeply. But there's more. Let's keep working our way through the text. Look at verse 19 and what Jesus says next. He says, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you, and so we care deeply about, not just hearing the Word of God, but also being doers of the Word of God here at Friendship Community Church. So, application time. We got a shipment in of snakes and scorpions from the exotic pet store this week. See which among you are really legit followers of Jesus Christ. Is that what Jesus is encouraging us to do? Of course not. Look at the context of what he's saying. This authority that Jesus is giving is not just as a test for us to prove our authenticity as there are some pockets of people who teach and even practice here in parts of Appalachia and other and other places. He says this authority is for all of the power. It's, it's over all of the power of the enemy. And and that word nothing is emphatic in the Greek. Nothing, not a thing, shall, shall hurt you. Again, I think it's helpful for us to pause here and make sure we're, we're really understanding what Jesus is saying and then what he's not saying. Does this nothing shall hurt you mean that the disciples of Jesus and then the subsequent followers of him even today will never experience physical pain or hardship? Well, I better not mean that because that's clearly not what the Bible teaches. Of course it's not. James, one of the the 12, is very soon about to meet a violent death by sword. And if you just fast forward a little bit, almost all of the 12, save the apostle John, will die a martyr's death. By the way, they tried to kill John too. They, They threw him in a that of boiling oil, and that didn't work, and they tried to poison him, and that didn't work, so then they just sent him into exile on Patmos. What's what's Jesus mean? Nothing shall hurt you. Well, what Jesus is saying here, of course, is there is nothing that will ultimately harm you if you're clothed with my presence and power. Anything that's harming you now in the temporal has come through the sovereign hands of God, and it's almost like Jesus will say later here in another chapter or two, chapter 12, we shouldn't fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more than they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear, Jesus says. Fear him who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Even the hairs of your head are numbered fear not jesus says to his followers you are of more value than many sparrows so friendship community church if we're applying this truth rightly to our lives i hope we can just exhale a spiritual sigh of relief fear not little flock god's got you in his hands so let's get to some real application. If snake handling isn't exactly what Jesus means by this, what, what does he mean? Well, well, uh, let's, let's get some, some more practical, stick-to-your-ribs ideas about how to apply this in 2023. First, we are still engaged in a very real b- battle. Scripture teaches us in Ephesians 6 that this battle that wages for our souls is not a battle against flesh and blood, It's a battle against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the enemy. And thankfully, the Lord has equipped us with His resources, everything necessary for life and godliness to withstand these powers, to withstand these spiritual serpents and scorpions, if you will. God's answer for us today was lifted right out of that same passage, out of Ephesians chapter 6, Friendship Community Church, we must, to withstand the battle in which we're engaged, put on the whole armor of God. And I would love to take a little derailment and put some color on that, except, go figure, Bob Mankel is teaching on that very topic this Wednesday in our Bible study. You should come out. Uh, the, the, the full armor of God and what it means for us in Christ to wage war faithfully for Christ. Nothing ultimately can harm us if we are in his sovereign hands. Now, I think we can all agree, or I hope we can all agree so far, that this is very good news. I mean, how cool is it that the demons are subject to the uh, the disciples here? That, that Jesus said about their victory in His name. I saw Satan falling like lightning. That Jesus would presume to say there are no powers of earth or hell or darkness, no snakes or scorpions that will that will win. Well, this is pretty good, right? These are amazing promises. But according to Jesus, the Savior, all that stuff doesn't even hold a candle to what he's about to say next. Look at verse 20. And if you're somebody who who takes notes in your Bible or marks it up, I I mean, just get out your highlighter and just plaster verse 20. This is such a big deal. Jesus said, nevertheless, he's affirmed them. It's not that he's dismissing everything he said before. The victory they've achieved in his name. But nevertheless, he's got something new to add. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Wow. I don't know about you, but I I hope... Every time I read that, fireworks just start to explode in my soul. Names are written in heaven. Wow! Jesus' charge here to his followers to rejoice is given in the the present imperative. Translation, this is not a one-time deal. This is not a one-time rejoicing. Jesus is calling his disciples to a continual rejoicing. You see, there's a higher kind of joy, not in the power that they have, although that's amazing, not in the success that they've achieved, though that's remarkable. The true joy comes from their future reward. The fact that their very names are inscribed in the heavenlies. One biblical commentator, Daryl Bach, observes that In that day, the word written, this word written in Greek was used for the sense of making a list or a public registry, kind of like a census. So Jesus is essentially saying then, your names, if you follow me, are written in the census of heaven. Isn't that cool? a glorious juxtaposition. You almost get whiplash here. We just have heard, while Satan is falling like a lightning bolt from heaven, Jesus turns to his disciples but says, but not you. You, your names are inscribed in heaven's registry. What incomparable joy to know that because of Jesus, the names of his followers are written in the heavenly role. Let's take a moment to drill down on this because according to Jesus, this is the higher joy. This is a a bigger thing to rejoice in than than the fact that everything is going well for you or you're experiencing resounding success. Even in gospel ministry, the biggest deal is that you would know and rejoice that that you belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords their names are written in heaven which begs the question written where i've heard it's a big place written where in, in heaven well let's let's take some time and just drill down on this a, a little more <clears throat> excuse me a little more closely what do we know about these names that are written in heaven do we see this anywhere else in scripture and the answer of course is oh yeah This is a glorious truth, not just given to us in the New Testament, but bracketing your Bible, references in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike to the names of God's children being inscribed in eternity quick sample platter, if you will. And I apologize, this is my fault. I didn't, have, didn't put together slides for you today. So, so rather than trying to scramble flipping, I'm gonna go quickly here. I just would encourage you to drink in these truths, maybe write down a reference as it comes if you need to. But, but rather than knowing the right information, my prayer for you today is that your soul would be stirred by the power of the Holy Spirit. If this truth is your truth. If you belong to Jesus, that you would hear the power of what Jesus says about you and find joy. You know, Moses wrote about this. Moses, like way back in the law, wrote about our names being written in God's book. Exodus 32, 33, But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Whew. Sounds serious. God's got a book, and the wages of sin yield blotting, <laughs> yield eternal death. Daniel gives us a, a little bit more of a clear picture, a little more color. Daniel, Old Testament prophet Daniel, Daniel 12.1. At that time, he writes, shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. And everyone whose name shall be found written in the book." You see, we get hints, even in the Old Testament, to God's book and, and names that are His in that book. And then we fast forward for the sake of time, I'll just give you three more, three little truths, three, three nuggets from the revelation of the Apostle John. Revelation thirteen eight, And all who dwell on earth will worship it. John's writing here of the beast and his image. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. Take note of the time stamp here. In the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Whew. Another one. Revelation 17, 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. So just, just checking for understanding. When? When did the lamb write these names in his book? Before the foundation of the earth. Like that ink is dry, right? That happened a long time ago. Revelation 21, 27. This is the very end. But nothing unclean will enter it. John's writing of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, this is heaven, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those, listen, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. just, Just a little sample platter for you of references in Scripture to this, these names that are written in heaven and where that happens and when that happens. So, so three very simple observations before we move along in our text. First, about names being written in heaven. We see that everyone who belongs to Jesus is written. Their names are written in his book. And everyone who doesn't, Revelation twenty one twenty seven is excluded from eternal paradise, ultimately doomed to the lake of fire. It is a very big deal, friend, that your name is written in that book. Secondly, we read about names being written in heaven, or we learn this, that this book has an owner. Did you catch it? It's called, after all, the Lamb's Book of Life. Who does the book belong to? Jesus. is His book. And He's the only one who writes in it. It belongs to Him. Salvation belongs to our God. It's His and to the Lamb. When? That's the third thing. I try to draw attention to it already as we've gone through, but it bears repeating. When did these names get written in that book, in, in the Lamb's book of life? Well, I'll remind you, he wrote those names in his book before the foundation of the world. Before you had presumed to do one good deed or bad. Friends, I hope that this generates in you as the children of God, as, as followers of Jesus Christ. This generates in you and me a, a blessed confidence as we sung about just a moment ago, a blessed assurance that he who began the good work in you will carry it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. There's an excerpt from a, uh, an account of the life of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Some of you have heard of that faithful man of God, who's now passed, sometime late in 1980, Ian Murray visited the aging, <clears throat> excuse me, the aging Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones. The famous London preacher was drawing near to death and could only sit up for an hour or two each day. Murray asked him an obvious question: "How are you coping now that your ministry is so confined? After all." Lloyd-Jones had preached to countless thousands, bringing many to faith in Christ. He'd also had a leading role in establishing important evangelical institutions like the Tyndale House. Excuse me, some of you have heard of that. Or the Westminster Conference. Or the Banner of Truth. How are you coping? It's near the end. Lloyd-Jones replied, Do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. You see, he got it. He's quoting here from Luke 10. In his final days, Lloyd-Jones said, I am perfectly content. So let's turn the microscope around for a moment. Let's, let's point this truth at our own lives and see how we can be doers of it. Ask yourself this morning. I know it's simple, but it's worth it. This question is is a helpful diagnostic, diagnostic, easy for me to say. Ask yourself Is the joy of your name being written in heaven bleeding into your day to day life? That's a convicting question for me. Is the truth Christian? that Christ is Lord and you belong to Him and your name is in heaven. Is that truth informing your walk, your gait, your cadence throughout life? Friends, I think of how many of our restless hearts need to be comforted with these words from Christ today. Don't rejoice because things are going well for you. Rejoice because you belong to the Lamb. To the elderly among us who perhaps are lamenting even now that they can't do, even for Christ, what they once could, don't rejoice because you're useful. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. To the young mom whose life seems inundated with with the care of her children such that her days seem to blend together from one to the next in a never-ending cycle and she is worn, slap out. Mom, don't rejoice because you're on top of it. Rejoice because your name is written in heaven. To the child whose hearing this right now, thinking, I don't even have a driver's license or a paycheck for that matter. What can I do for Christ? Don't rejoice because you're seeing amazing things happen or because you have all kinds of freedom. No, rejoice because you belong to the Savior to the one who feels trapped in a dead-end job or a suffocating relationship, to the one who feels like their life is remarkably unremarkable. Don't rejoice because it's working out like you'd hoped. If you belong to Jesus, there is a higher joy that ought to be bubbling out of our lives inescapably so. This is the truth I need. Perhaps it's one you need to. Let's keep reading. Verse 21, Jesus continues. I mean, at this point, we might be thinking that we've reached the pinnacle, that we've reached the zenith of the mountain of joy. How do you top that? Your names are written in heaven. What could be higher than that? Answer, Jesus' joy. There's something higher than even that. Verse 21, look at verse 21. Jesus then models this joy himself. In that same hour, he rejoiced. He did it. In the Holy Spirit... Greek word here for Jesus rejoicing we can miss this in English it's actually a different word than the rejoicing and the joy that we've seen earlier it's a thicker word it's a it's a more substantive word the word literally means to rejoice exceedingly To exult, to be exuberant with joy. Jesus calls his disciples to remember who they are, whose they are, where they're headed, and then he turns and just pours out divine joy as he communicates to his Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice this, by the way, verse 21? This beautiful Trinitarian reference. All three members of the triune Godhead are present here. Jesus, God the Son, is rejoicing in God the Spirit, and he's directing his thanks and praise to God the Father. One God in three persons. But you've got to ask, what, why? Why such joy just bubbling out of our Lord? What's the occasion for this effervescent outburst of triune joy? Well, Jesus is delighting in the method, in the way that God has expressed his saving power. You see, God in his wisdom has not chosen the wise or the understanding to receive these benefits, to receive the the gift of eternal life and their names written in heaven. Who are these gifts for? They're for the babies. That's actually what the word literally means. Little children, it means infants or babies. The emphasis here is on the divine gift that's being given from God. Apparently, he hid these things from some and he revealed them to others. This is becoming a theme. We're seeing this as we're just walking through Scripture. God is the God of concealing And the God of revealing. He hid them from the proud. He hid these truths from the the self-righteous and the self-wise. And revealed them to the little babes, the poor in spirit. What's the point? Well, the point is that this salvation that's given by God alone is not based upon their deservedness, not their intellect or their strength or their morality or their good works. It's based... Purely, purely on God's kindness in choosing to reveal. You see, He sovereignly chose these helpless little ones and He inscribed their names in the registry of heaven. By the way, Jesus loves this truth and you should too. He's rejoicing over this truth. You see, Jesus. Bursts out in praise, almost echoing the Apostle John's words in 1 John 3, 1. See how great the Father's love that He's lavished upon us, that we should be called sons of God. And so we are. It didn't come to the deserving, not according to Jesus here, but to the undeserving, not to the proud or the worthy, not many wise, not many noble But God chose the foolish, the babes, to shame the wise and strong. This is a joy that Jesus teaches and delights in. And we ought not to sweep it under the rug. Your salvation, if you have it, friend, is a gift. It's a miracle from Most High God, who, I'll remind you, before the foundation of the world wrote your name, in His eternity. I hope for any of us here nursing pride by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning, that pride is shattered before the cross of Christ, before the grace of our King. If you belong to Jesus, it had nothing to do with you. It was based purely upon His sovereign grace and goodness. Now, Somehow, Jesus keeps turning up the heat. Look at this next verse. Look at, look at verse 22. The next thing Jesus says is even hotter. It's even more explosive. Jesus says, all things <clears throat> excuse me, have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses. I'm noticing this theme of sovereign choice. You see it? And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Two quick things, very major things that Jesus is teaching here. First, all authority, every ounce of authority from the Father has been handed over to the Son. All things, he says, the beginning of verse 22. All things handed over, given to me by my Father. It says the late R.C. Sproul once said, there are no... Maverick molecules in the universe. Jesus is sovereign over it all. He has all authority. Make no mistake about that. I seem to remember that in a certain Great Commission, but let's just keep moving for the sake of time. Jesus also teaches here in verse 22 that you can't, that you won't know who the Father is unless the Son chooses to open your eyes. To reveal him to you. In other words, every ounce of knowledge you have about God the Father, you have because Jesus has opened your eyes to see it. It's just like he says in that famous passage. Many of you know this one by heart. John 14, 6. After laying down the glorious truth that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, what's he say? He says, no one comes to the Father but God. Through me. He's the door of revelation, of salvation. No one gets to God Almighty but through Jesus the Son. This, of course, does not negate, of course, it doesn't negate the the verses and the glorious truth that both the Father and the Spirit are also involved in the glorious work of our salvation. John 6, no one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father draws him. So the, fa- the Father draws everyone to Jesus, but the Son has to open their eyes to reveal the Father. Yet we read in John 16, 15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he, the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine and give it to you. So who is it? The glorious One God, the triune Father, Son, and Spirit, equal in substance and divinity. Jesus is Lord. Remember, it's His book. What do we do with this? Well, again, at the expense of sounding simple, I just think the the clear truth is this, the clear application is this. If Jesus is at the core, and he is, if Jesus is that central to to eternity, to your name being written in, in eternity, then here's a question. How much, follower of Christ, do you specifically think about Jesus? Now, I want you to really think about that for a moment. How much time, excuse me, do you actually spend thinking about Christ? Do you take time? Is your mind or your heart regularly run to Him? In moments of sorrow, and moments of need, and moments of happiness, and moments of tiredness, how often do you think about Christ the Son? Does He occupy your mind space, your heart space? If he doesn't, and I'll say this with grace, friend, there's something out of alignment. Everything is about Jesus. So what do you do? Even if you're committed, even if you believe in him, even if you've trusted in him savingly, but but the reality is day in and day out, you might describe your affections toward the Lord as rather cool. What do you do if He's the center and you're not thinking about the center much? How do you realign? Well, one simple way to help is just to write these truths on the tablet of your heart. Memorize the truth of Scripture that keeps Him central, center stage. I'll just give you a couple examples. I'll lead with my favorite. Philippians 3, 7-10. to Oh, Paul writes, filled with the Holy Spirit, that I may know Christ. Take it all, he says. Philippians 3, 7 to 10. Take it all. It's garbage. Everything I've got, rubbish, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see, he gets it. He gets that all of life is about Jesus. How about Colossians 1? There's a good place to go. If you need help memorizing and meditating on the truth, the centrality of Jesus, Colossians 1, 15-20, all things were created through Him and for Him. Your life, your family, the resources you see around you, everything was made by Jesus and for His glory. He's the point. Write that one. Write that one down. Memorize that one. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears so also you will appear with him in glory. He's your life. You see it? Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Friends, this is not a hard message. These are elementary truths. What's Jesus say? They're for babies. They're for the simple. But Jesus is reminding us all over again, that our joy, that our satisfaction, that our delight comes not from what we have or what we do or the circumstances that bracket our lives. They come from where we're headed, from where we're headed. Jesus ends in verses 22 and 23 with these verses ringing out he turns to his disciples and says privately, I wish I could hear his voice and see the look in his eyes as he looked to them. and sa- He pronounces a blessing statement. Look, look at verse 23. Blessed. This is a beautiful benediction. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. To hear what you hear and did not hear it. This beatitude that Jesus pronounces upon his disciples. Think think for just a moment, before we close, of of all the high watermarks we have in the Old Testament. Think of all that God did. All of that pales in comparison to what his ragtag bunch of followers have in front of them in his person. I like how... The Reformed Expository Commentary puts it. Imagine what Jeremiah would have given to see the righteous branch that he wrote about raised up from David. Jeremiah 23.5 Imagine for just a moment the joy of Isaiah if he could have just beheld the son, the one who he prophesied would be conceived to the virgin. Isaiah 7.14 Imagine what Micah would give to see that baby born in Bethlehem. Imagine Job and and what he would have given to see the the risen Redeemer standing on the earth as he prophesied in Job 19.25. We could go on and on and on. And and what these faithful saints and prophets of old longed to see, what they saw just in shadows and glimpses, we have friends as the disciples had in full view. Perhaps this is why Jesus describes eternal life elsewhere as entering in to the joy of your master. So... It's time to end, and I'd like us to do that by ending where we began. I just want to read to you one more time the the passage of Scripture that Chad read at the outset of our message. I can't find, for the life of me, a more glorious description of our eternal inheritance. And Jesus directs us in this passage today to respond with joy. And so I just want to ask, maybe you want to close your eyes, I don't care what it looks like, but just as we close today, let's rehearse once more the revelation of God for those who, who stand in Christ, who have tasted and seen that He is Lord and He is good. This is First Peter 1, 3-9, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Here's that word. Lord, we rejoice in this. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. We do, Lord. We love you. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Lord, teach us to rejoice. The circumstances of life we confess cloud our hearts. They clamor for our affections. They dampen our affections for you. God, show us Christ. Give us joy that our names in him are written in heaven. We pray in his name. Amen.